0: Guys, we're in the middle of the pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash Solving Healthcare and get 10% off sign-up fees. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Cordial Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Qualcast Nation, we got a special episode. We got Dr. Naheed Dasani. I don't I don't say there's about there's about too many people that come on the show, but this man is special. He is somebody and he's gonna continue to be somebody. Founder of the Peach program, providing Palliative care to our homeless population, creating help it create satellite versions of that throughout the country. Being an advocate for the BIPOC community, homeless community during these hard times, especially during COVID, he is phenomenal. He is also going to be one of the presenters at End Well Take Ten, which we'll we'll talk about. You'll hear about later on in the show. Like here in Canada. In Ontario we are lucky to have this guy and you're going to hear why. His story is tremendous, he's empathetic, he is kind and he reminds us about why it's important to think about the inequalities in our current healthcare system. Why we need that empathy, why we should be providing patient-centered care and trauma-centered care to our homeless population and to others. You're going to feel motivated and and moved after this one, guys. So without further delay, Dr. Nahid Dusani. Quadcast Nation, we got a special guest today, okay? We landed, believe it or not, Dr. Nahid Dusani. Man, palliative care doc, advocate, just wholeheartedly amazing human being, and it is such a privilege to have you on the show. A monster fan. Thanks for joining us today, my friend.
1: No, thank you. And it's honestly an honor to be here with you, the man, the one, the only podcast. This is amazing. <laughs> I've been waiting for this for a long time.
0: Oh, my goodness. If uh, if I wasn't a brother, I'd be blushing right now. Okay. <laughs> um, listen, I want to just get, get into it. Like, how did you land where you have in terms of the world of palliative care, treating the homeless, treating people on the street? Like, this is not common practice in our palliative care world or even in the world of medicine. So tell us your journey, how you got to where you you are now.
1: Yeah, no, that's a very fair question. So I grew up the child of two refugees who came to Canada in the 1970s from uh, Uganda. Um, There was a humanitarian crisis there and essentially fled war and genocide and persecution with very little uh, next to nothing. And so I grew up in a home that was really focused on social justice. Ah, uh, community well-being. I you know I recognize the social determinants of health, and I always knew I wanted to to do that kind of work. And as I went through medicine and eventually in residency, um, I ended up um, uh, providing health care at a local men's shelter. Um, this was in my first year while I was a resident at the University of Toronto and provided health care for a young man who was dealing with a head and neck cancer who was homeless, um, experiencing homelessness, um, had a chronic uh, mental illness, schizophrenia, and, and had been on the streets for several years. Um, I, I built a relationship with him and learned that he was diagnosed maybe like a year before. And, and due to you know, feelings of insecurity and, and frustration, he was kind of lost to follow up as we say in medicine. Hmm. So he presented in pain crisis to the shelter and he had actually gone to multiple hospitals and ERs and walk-in clinics trying to seek pain control but he couldn't get medicine for his pain, probably because of the stigma of homelessness. I built this connection with him and then I got to the shelter one day, uh, really excited to help him with his pain. And I, I learned that he had died. He had overdosed on a combination of alcohol and street drugs. And this was a really traumatic event for me in my life. Um, I didn't know what palliative care was. I didn't know about the world of healthcare for people experiencing homelessness, but I knew that h- him, terry and i hold him near and dear in my heart and every conversation had died because he had fallen through the cracks due to structural vulnerabilities around him and since that time i know i've really focused on 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 this kind of work and the rest i guess is history
0: holy cow though like first of all the story about terry is just breaks your heart and and i hate to say that like this is this happens like this is not like once in a blue moon kind of scenario it's it's you know it's falling through the cracks, the stigma, all these things. But what what I want to uh, celebrate about you, Nahid, is that you didn't just watch it happen. You you actually decided to do something about it. You decided to be that advocate for people that don't have a voice. You know what I mean? Which I think is so unbelievable. So, so like what what did you do with that? Like yeah, you hadn't been exposed to palliative care. So you decide to train up in this, and like, what was the rest of the the journey
1: there? First of all, you're very kind. Um, If you really want to know what I did with that, um, I cried that night. (laughs) Like to be honest, I grieved. Right, I I couldn't believe that in a country like Canada, in a city like Toronto, that has a world class cancer care system, a world class palliative care, you know, programming um, um, that a person like this could fall through the cracks again and again and again. But once I kind of got over that, I requested some time off from my program director to just think through some things and do some research. And I started to realize that there was this field called palliative care. And, and you know, as someone who works on the front lines and does excellent work in the community and, and in hospital, providing palliative care for people, that it's this perfect intersection of healthcare and humanity and mm-hmm. i see it as this i saw it as this opportunity to provide quality of life care but then i also learned about the healthcare of people experiencing homelessness that this is one of canada's sickest subpopulations they're 28 times more likely to have hepatitis c 5 times more likely to have heart disease 4 times more likely to have cancer compared to you and i and the average life expectancy for people experiencing homelessness is 34 to 47 years old so this is a very sick population. They're often diagnosed late. And so their palliative care needs are very great. And so, um, you know, I look to mentors who um, you give me a lot of credit. I give a lot of credit to the many mentors who I turn to, researchers, clinicians who are working here and abroad to think about how we could rationalize a response. Ended up pursuing a palliative medicine residency at the University of Toronto with pretty much the sole purpose of learning how to improve access for people experiencing structural vulnerabilities like poverty and homelessness. And then when I graduated, launched a new program um, called the PEACH program, Palliative Education and Care for the Homeless in downtown Toronto, a program at the Inner City Health Associates. Wow, wow,
0: <laughs> like, this is what, on a show we call it changing the boogie, man. It's like, you <laughs> see the problem, you're like, we are going to do something about it. Enough is enough. And it's like, it's like you said, people don't realize life expectancy most uh average age less than uh 50 as you you mentioned yeah um the amount of just in in terms of humanity just the amount of suffering that goes on for our homeless population and you know we had the doctor uh, Turnbull on. I don't know if you've ever met Jeff Turnbull.
1: Absolutely, uh, someone I admire deeply, an absolute legend. Isn't field, he a legend? Sure. Yeah, and yeah, what, yeah.
0: What I learned from him, and and uh, maybe I'm a bit ashamed to say, is like these. You 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 got to remember these are real people. This is somebody's yeah. mother. This is somebody's yeah. daughter. This is a a brother, a, like a sibling. Like it's these are real people. So it's not just you know because I think it's easy. to uh, unfortunately easy to dehumanize people when it, when it comes to the issues yeah. around this, but, ah, uh, man, it's just so amazing about how you're able to, once again, change that boogie with that peach program. So give us a sense of like what you've had to do to develop it, where it's going. um, And just cause, you know, once again, if this is a model that people outside of Canada or Ontario could emulate, like we should be celebrating this.
1: No, thank you so much. And, you know, I have to say this wasn't um, just my uh, uh, project. Obviously, I, I worked with an incredible group of individuals who I still work with to this day who have brought this to life. But really, you know, when we launched the PEACH program, um, the, the vision was for it to be a mobile street and shelter-based palliative care program that aims to meet the needs of people experiencing homelessness with serious life-limiting illness so no person falls through the cracks, so that people can get, get care in a shelter, people can get care under a bridge, people can get share, care on the street in the way ways that make sense to them. It started with myself and a street nurse, Namrak Ahmed, who's just an inspiration to me. I'm driving um, uh, in my Honda Civic and really it was Functioning out of the back of my Honda Civic, and we just drive around the wow. city and provide visits. Yeah. And then six years later, in 2020, um, the Peach program is now a 24 7 model of care that cares for between 100 and 110 clients on caseload at any time. It features an interprofessional team, a health navigator, a nursing coordinator, four palliative care physicians. Um, we've had peer workers on our team. We integrate with home and community care and with housing agencies and casework in the community. Um and so what we're but we're really proud um is to be part of a national community. Since that time, we've had cousin programs kind of uh create but be that have been created across Canada in Vic- I'm gonna go across the map, okay? Yeah, Just yeah, so yeah, some yeah. shout outs. Celebrate, Celebrate it, <laughs> So in Victoria, we have the port program, you know, with my colleagues um Dr. Kelly Stajdahar and Frazier Black, who do incredible work in Victoria, British Columbia. And in Calgary, we have the Cal- uh, the Camp program. Um uh, run by Dr. Simon Colgan um, and colleagues. And then in Edmonton, uh, we have the Peacoat program that's run by Dr. Kara Bablitz. And there's now programs that are sprouting up in different places. Like I can't even keep track of all yes. the, the the programs. But what it means is that maybe there's some promise in getting out of our hospitals, getting out of our clinics, meeting people where they're at to support people in a trauma-informed way to provide palliative care in in their in their homes, which are often thought to be Um, which is like an unorthodox way of way we think of homes. Like we've designed a health system that's structurally incongruent to deliver healthcare to people experiencing homelessness. But maybe this model shows promise in in palliative care and maybe in other fields too. Yes. Okay. Y'all
0: can't see this, but I've been smiling the whole time because this is just, (laughs) it's, it's so beautiful in so many ways. Like, do you realize you're, you are providing patient centered care. You are personalizing it. It's what needs are within that patient population. They don't want to be in hospital. They don't want to be uh, in an environment that has been treating them like shit for all these years. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. this, is, this is going to them and tr- giving them the care that they need to, um, to be alleviated from their suffering. It's so Absolutely. beautiful. And, people, it is being amplified. You heard how many sites have been uh, trying to do this, and this is this is exactly what we want to be talking about on solving healthcare. Because, you know, it's not all about that your your village. It's how we could create these beautiful things throughout other places. And um, I gotta ask too, in terms of the development of these uh, satellites or what have you. I, forgive me if that's not the appropriate word, but. Um, like how quickly did this develop? Because I mean, you're a young man, like, and so <laughs> for you to have been part of this so early in your career, like it, it
1: it sounds like this was a pretty rapid spread. You know, I could never have imagined that this would have sparked like a movement within the field of palliative care. But yeah, so you know, I, I started um, in practice in 2014. And we started the PEACH program. And shortly after, right in 2015, Calgary and their model was starting and you know, then Victoria started, and then Edmonton, and it's only been like you know a, a good like five, six years, and we've seen models develop across Canada, and now we're starting to engage the conversation internationally as well. We've seen some programs in Seattle, Brisbane, Australia, and even a team in London, London, the United Kingdom. So, I think I think what we're what we're seeing is an evolution. And I know you talk a lot about solving healthcare. And sometimes when we when we train the the next generation of trainees, we teach them, well, this is healthcare, this is how it is, and this is how it's going to be. And what I hope these conversations bring to the forefront for anybody listening, whether you're a trainee or not, is the idea that th- this is this is not how healthcare has to be. We can dismantle and deconstruct structures of power within healthcare, yes. And we can we can we can reiterate, we can we can rearrange that power to bring equity to the forefront. And for in my little corner of the world, that that's what we did. But at a macro level, I wonder if that's a lesson that makes sense for, for your listeners today, too what the
0: dropping bombs man my friend
1: (laughs) dropping bombs i I was getting chills
0: just thinking about because i was actually going to ask you before even talking about like uh you know how to create change within our 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 current infrastructures what is it about you though you know what i mean because there's not many like Maybe this is hard to generalize, but I I find in medicine innovation, thinking outside the box, um, trying to create change is up you have a lot of resistance throughout like there's, there's usually obstacles to be able to achieve your goals. So I guess my question is what is what is it about you that is allowing you to push or what did you do to overcome some of these barriers like what
1: what's making you naheed? That's, uh, wow, that's a very deep question. (laughs) Thank you. I'm sorry. It's 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 great. It's it's awesome. I feel like it's
0: rare these days, man.
1: You know, and I, again, I want to say that none of the actions that, that, that we, that I take as a team happens in isolation, Mm that the team that I work with is everything. When I think about what we've done, I put that to the forefront. I think sometimes we get wrought in these iterations of that caught in these iterations of um, evaluation and study. And, you know, they say in Ontario, we're the capital of pilot programs because we, we do a pilot, then we study the pilot, then we study the study of the pilot. And I am a fan <laughs> of, of evidence and I, I live in an evidence-based medicine and healthcare world, but you need to, we need to balance that with the reality. And so we, we, when we launched the PEACH program, for example, we did a one-year pilot. We saw some, uh, some good results. You know, 80% of people, you know, uh, were reconnected to family or friends. 64% wow. never went to the hospital ER. 83% um, died where they wanted to, and we we were like, that's good enough. It's making a difference. We don't need to study this. Like, let's just push it, and we did. And I think sometimes we get caught up in that. Just switching gears, I think um, sometimes um, in the in the spirit the health the spirit of healthcare is always meant to be about the patient. But you know as well as I do, in our teams, our institutions, we get distracted. We get caught up with um, funding models. We get caught up with staffing. We get caught up with branding. We get caught up with there's a lot of distractions. Mm. We need to bring back to person-centered care. And within our work for people experiencing homelessness, that boils down to trauma-informed care, about learning someone's how to pronounce someone's name, about how, what their preferred pronoun is, about bending down to their level, to speak at eye level so you can connect with them, um, going outside of hospitals and clinics to, in, in, in communities that people typically wouldn't provide healthcare, for example and being, you know, thinking about policies and procedures that recognize the traumas that people have experienced. Even one night on the streets can be a traumatic experience and responding in that way. And then finally, I think one way is we've really invested in supporting each other. There is a pandemic happening out there and I know we all know about that one, but the COVID one, but there's another pandemic happening and it's grief and it's moral injury and it's compassion fatigue among frontline workers, working in healthcare, of course, but also on the service, in the social service sector, particularly supporting people experiencing homelessness as well. And what we've done is, um had some interventions to really support people through their grief. We hold these grief circles when one of our clients dies so that social workers, social care workers, health workers can come together. We light a flame, we grieve, we laugh, we joke, we remember the person we cared for, we put that flame out so that we can go out and do it again. So I think really thinking about you know, you know know moving forward with some evidence and not overstudying it, I think trauma-informed care is a second concept and probably the third is supporting each other and providing some wellness amidst this pandemic of grief y'all
0: catch realize how much gold was just dropped there man <laughs> i have to write down this i have to write this down listen like the aiming for good not better like approach like not aiming for perfection not getting bogged down by bureaucracy evidence like like you said the like i'm all about evidence-based practice but we have right. to be pragmatic at times you know what Absolutely. i mean like you, don't have, you can't wait for the you know Does it have to be an RCT with uh, the N of 30,000 patients to be able to determine whether something's effective or not? Like, when you tell me you're reducing, peace program, reducing eMERGE visits, when you're you're reducing hospitalizations, reducing healthcare spending, essentially, bam, okay, let's dance. You know what I'm saying? And then you talk about... um, like having like that trauma trauma forgive me is trauma centered care trauma informed care yes. trauma informed care R- realize like often we're not putting ourselves in our patient's shoes like think about that for a second think about living like get outside of your condo your apartment your office and you're living on the street right now we today we're never november 26 imagine being outside hustling trying to figure out where you're going to sleep what you're going to eat Like that shit's real, and like so to have that empathy and to be at that level, is 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 our duty. I'll I'll put it that way. It's our duty. And -hmm. then I, I gotta gotta give some love to the circle of grief. I think collectively in medicine we don't take enough time to to grief. Like I think we all deal with it in different ways, and sometimes we, in general, we don't deal with it enough. But to make it an act of practice, I know in our palliative care team what we do it on Wednesdays we we talk about the patients that have uh, we we've, we've lost and, and what you know tell their story and maybe talk about how they connected with us and it's 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 healing i i think it's such an important part of what we do but knowing that once again you guys you know I'm ahead of the game like that being an active part of your practice and and um,
1: yeah, yeah it's
0: just it's he is wonderful it's just wonderful to hear
1: Thank you. And it's also likewise very wonderful to hear that you are doing that because I suspect, you know, the times that you spend for reflection with your team to remember those who have passed on is, um, is, is in a way, is, is a way to support healing and prevents that moral injury and compassion fatigue. I don't like saying burnout. It's moral injury and compassion fatigue. That's what mm. we're really talking about. And it probably serves you and your team really well to be able to do that. I just don't understand if we're about, if we're all about health, right? Cause it's healthcare. Why don't mm-hmm. we do this more? Why isn't this more yeah. prominent and consistent? Right. I don't know. It, it, it's kind of wild that it's not.
0: Yeah, it's true. And I think of my ICU colleagues, like we, we see death and dying on the daily. And sometimes we debrief on some of the more traumatic cases or the more, the ones that hit closer to home. But you know, there is a lot of, uh, moral injury within our, our colleagues. And, and so it, it, yeah, you got me thinking like whether we need to be more active when, in, in terms of that, cause you know, we, our research program, we were doing some active uh, projects on how to reduce, um, moral injury and, and, Neat. and we called it burnout, uh, uh, within, uh, within our group. But, um, yeah, no, that's, now you got me thinking about just having that aspect of things, um, Cause I think a lot of people also do it at a personal level. Like, you know what I mean? Like I I can speak for myself personally. Like I, I usually try and reflect on these things, uh, you know, maybe on the drive home or, or, or so at some point, like I always feel like it's got to come out at some point, but, um, but yeah, like to be more proactive about it and not wait for it to, you know, affect you dramatically in, 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 in a time where you can't afford it, I think is, is, is intelligent. Um, we should, we need to talk about the pandemic. You brought it up a little bit cause <laughs> shit is crazy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like yeah. the, the way it's impacting, like, it, uh, I don't even know where to start buddy. Like the, like how it's illustrated some of our gaps in our healthcare system, how it's affected the most vulnerable, uh, our vulnerable populations, uh, the hardest you know, maybe I'll leave the question broad. Like what, what is, what are lessons that we have learned? What are some of the messages that you would want to amplify and, and say to the world from what we've seen, you know, what is it? Eight months into this, nine months into this craziness.
1: Yeah. So I think, I think you really bring up some good points and you can't talk about this pandemic if you're not talking about Inequities, right, and mm. and uh, who is bearing the brunt and the disproportionate impact of this of this pandemic? And I I always say that the, the pandemic hasn't just highlighted the inequities in our communities; it's also perpetuated them on multiple levels. And so, mm. you know, I'll speak f- from one level, you know, working um, as a as a physician who provides healthcare to people experiencing homelessness, but then later um, uh, uh, being brought on as the medical director for the region of Peel's COVID nineteen homeless response here in Ontario. You know, I've been at working on the front lines, and then in, and then in some leadership positions to be able to provide responses um, to to this pandemic, and it it it's it's really uh, brought to forefront the homelessness crisis in this country. You know, we in, here in Toronto, where they're saying there's 10,000 people living on the streets every single night. Um, you know, across Canada, 300,000 unique individuals are experiencing homelessness. We think that's an undercount. We know that there's been, you know, uh, the establishment of these COVID programs and jurisdictions across Canada, like the one in Region of Peel, to support people experiencing homelessness who are under investigation for COVID or who have gotten COVID. And while that's been helpful, there's this whole proportion of people who just don't trust institutions like healthcare. So they've not come into programs like this, or they've not gone into the hotel and motel programs that have been developed. Um, And so they're in encampments uh, and the encampments are growing and you can see them lining the streets of cities across Canada right now. It's hard to ignore. You can see it with your own eyes. But what what I have learned is that for years they told us there's no funding for housing and for oh years God, we were right? told right? that gover- <laughs> levels of government can't work together and then covid came and all of a sudden like i'm seeing oh we can get hotels and we can get motels and I'm, obviously i'm for all that but what what like so what i'm saying is has covid 19 taught us that we can it can be a cure to homelessness um it, like can, we can actually cure this thing and we can now work together and maybe there's that's the silver lining of it that's um one front, the other is um, on the fronts around, um, you know, the realities of, of of racism and the impacts of of systemic racism in our communities. We know about the events that happened with George Floyd um, earlier on in the pandemic and what that led to, you know, across the world, really, especially here in Canada. And it's important to say if people aren't aware that that COVID-19 disproportionately impacts low-income racialized people. In a city like Toronto, First Wave, 83% of people who were impacted were BIPOC, Black and Indigenous, and people of color. In cities like Hamilton, 50% of people who were impacted um, uh, were were BIPOC, while representing only 20% of the population. Like You know, just as examples. And so, you know, this speaks to systemic issues. the, 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 the sometimes the government response has been to blame these communities sometimes the stigmatic stigmatized response has been to blame you know racialized communities for this. But you, you cannot blame racialized communities because these have been our essential workers. These are the people working the front lines, factories, warehouses, uh, production plants, taxi drivers, your Uber drivers, grocery stores, um, so PSWs, you know, people working in long term care. And um, and our this has been our response. Our response should be paid sick leave. Our response should be government support. Um, um, and we've recently seen some support for small businesses from the government, but we need to see more. And so we've you know we've seen that impact and, and 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 i hope this changes the the dynamic uh, a little bit about how we how we move forward on these conversations the other reflection is just around um communication and i just it blew my mind like halfway through this pandemic that the way that most governments across Canada were communicating public health knowledge was like these press conferences in the middle of the day at 1 p.m. when everyone else is working. And like, who watches these <laughs> press conferences? I don't know. Do you? <laughs> I've never once okay. seen this bad boy. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah so like i started to get online and be like what are we doing like why why is this the only media- medium and then yeah i think i think what you expect is traditional media picks that up and translates the information like i'm under 40 and most of my friends do not watch tv do not watch traditional news they're on instagram they're on tiktok and mm-hmm. actually that's where they're getting their information about covid no wonder they don't know about like we should be staying home as you know they didn't know about the social bubbles when that was a thing like they, they're very worried about um you know vaccination they're getting all this misinformation how are we not out there with the real information uh spending i uh, sp- spent a lot of time um trying to um uh, convince you know the government and different levels of, of decision makers to be using these platforms more effectively like yeah. instagram and tiktok and i've been dropping some of these videos to show examples of how we could do it anyways those are some thoughts
0: <laughs> wow yes Is i mean the first thing is the uh we talked to Mark uh, Tyndall about, uh, and and he's in uh, in Vancouver about Another exactly legend. what you said about, you know, we we can't find housing for our homeless and all the bureaucracy and red tape that came up. Covid hit, boom, you know, they they're able to to provide some shelter and some and some housing. It's it's, I I hope there is some level of sustainability there that people are going to see the benefits and the and the need and post-pandemic that these kind of um approaches will stay um and the other thing that you know you mentioned that really um stuck with me is you know how much yes COVID has hit racialized and, and, and poor communities like i just don't know why we're not like is our approaches are we are we approaching this problem? Are we having any strategy to address that? This is what drives me nuts. Like you know, I'm I'm, I'm in Ottawa. There's two ice. This is, once again, guys. It's uh, November 26th, uh, according to our you know our our, our uh, public health site. We got like two ICU COVID patients in the city. You know what I mean? And you know, they, at the time they were talking about closing gyms and stuff like that. And, and locally, you know. This is not where the problem is. The problem is long-term care, high rises, low socioeconomic scenarios, BIPOC community. But what are we doing about it? Well, how are we addressing it? Are we going to the community? Are we talking to their leaders and saying, "Here's all the problems. Or do you guys fully understand what we're trying to do? Bubbles, distancing, um, limiting social interactions. Like, is that being communicated? And like talking. Like once again, even when it comes to like what you're talking about when you're palliative care setting going to the people and talking to them at, at and trying to address their needs and um yeah that communication piece i <laughs> it is kind of funny <laughs> one o'clock on whatever it is one o'clock during the day like motherfucker I'm, we're, we're hustling i ain't uh <laughs> i ain't going on i don't even know where you would find it it's like on general news or like i don't even know where you see these press conferences <laughs> but um but yeah tailoring the communication to the people especially the people that are being uh where it's being hit the hardest it's it's such great points and do do you feel like what do you think will change what do you think will stick like you know uh, do you have hope
1: in all this you know um i always say that um if there if we don't have hope like you know what's the point of all this you got to mm. have hope right like that has to be the guiding light through all this but um, the path to that hope, I always say, it has like like we talked about earlier in the conversation. You have to bring it back to the person we're caring for, and I think through through a path through equity, we can that if that's our guiding light and our compass, we will find our way to hope. And so, what we've seen too often in this pandemic is a is a simplifies simplified one size fits all approach yes. to almost anything and everything, whether it be around. You know um the way we collect data they weren't collect you know they weren't collecting race-based data at the beginning our government officials were actually saying we shouldn't collect race-based data and then we did look what happened right mm-hmm. um to our communications right we or co- you know press conferences when you know actually people under 40 are you know case counts are going up for people under 40 and they're not getting the messaging um to low-income racialized communities where they previously we were not, you know, releasing hotspot data in here in Ontario. They we weren't releasing funding for local pop-up testing. And then finally that did change over time. But if we had just kind of kind of had that approach at the beginning, things might've been different. And while I'm not sitting at those decision, um, at those tables and being at those tables must be challenging. I wonder sometimes about the voices that are at those tables. Do we have BIPOC representation? Um, Do we have people from all walks of life at those tables? And I I, I don't get that sense.
0: Yeah, I was just going to (laughs) say, like,
1: because I don't, I mean, I know, like,
0: if I'm at that table, my voice is loud. You know what I mean? When you see what's going on. So like, I mean, as you said, we're not there, but I highly doubt that there's going to be representation up there because it shows. It really shows
1: yeah yeah the proof oh. is kind of in the pudding when it comes out for sure
0: oh my god
1: but it you know i i do i do think
0: the fact that things have changed you know what i'm saying Naheed? like the fact that yeah they're you know hot they did start to do hot hot spot testing they did uh start to you know measure or, or record uh race um you know voices were heard and things were did change it probably you know slower than we would like but it, it still is changed so you know there is hope. But
1: voices are so important like so for example when Ontario switched to online booking for COVID testing yeah. because the lines were so long one of the things that we were shocked at is like there seemed to have not been any thought about you know the plight of people who don't have internet or access to phones or for example the population i serve people experiencing homelessness mm-hmm. and so we had to speak out and then we learned later that you know they heard us speaking out so then they made accommodations at these sites for walk-ins and and it just it's just if you if you just take an equity informed approach from the very beginning your outcome and you listen to the population the outcomes may be, be- maybe better it's probably mm-hmm. an important principle in like improving and solving healthcare, right <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah this is um... <laughs> this is one thing for sure. Equity has come up as a, as a major theme and, uh, we're going to continue to advocate for it, my friend, cause it's awesome. You know, a lot of these guys can't, their, their voices aren't being heard, you know, for sure, so, for sure. Um, we, we need to talk about take 10, my friend. Yeah, <laughs> like, Listen, I'm going to get you to explain what take 10 is, but I just want to say You are in some pretty balling company at at this (laughs) virtual conference. I got to tell you, and we were talking beforehand that it's too bad this thing is virtual uh, now because, uh, uh, like meeting some of these uh, co-presenters, it would be unbelievable. But yeah, tell us a little bit about Take Ten.
1: Yeah, so um, uh, Take 10 is a project um, is is a product of the Enwell project so you can head over to enwellproject.org and it's a it's a American organization started uh, by um, uh, my colleague um, uh, Dr. Shoshana Ungerleader who is um, an incredible human being and the founder of Enwell but also one of the executive producers for the uh, Netflix documentary called Extremists. I don't oh, know if you Yes, yes, yeah, the, yeah. the ICU one. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. So Dr. Ungolieter actually was the executive producer for that. And um, she's based out of um, uh, uh, California. And um, N-Well runs an event um, each year um, uh, uh, that really brings uh, palliative care to um, care. Uh, death, dying, serious illness conversations to the forefront for uh, previously for an American audience. And they've grown over the years. And this year, you're right, um, I was supposed to fly to, to LA for this event and uh, speak live. But due to the pandemic, it's now of a virtual format, which I feel very lucky to be a part of anyway. And um, I'm just like pinching myself, thinking about the <laughs> kind of people that are at this event. I feel really lucky to be in the midst of, of some of these people. And I think it's it's, it's free. I think people will really like it and um, the videos are archived it is it is live on december 10th um uh, and nwell project.org um, is the the website and i encourage people to really you know t- check it out i think it's going to be really moving
0: awesome yeah hey, this is going to be pretty special and like atul gawande is going to be a that bad boy i saw like blair underwood whom like my my sister and my mom had mad crushes on or well, la law yeah, t- you know totally saying, yeah. taraji Yeah.
1: yes taraji henson oh, yes, yeah. yes andy cohen <laughs> <laughs> the it's list goes on it's kind of crazy it's Thank crazy you so much
0: <laughs> that's how you know you've made it my friend um we always try and end on a high note can you can you think of um a time where yourself or your team has made a real impact on a patient or, or family that like you know like you always uh, uh, at times have those stories or those moments where you, you reflect back on and, and you tell yourself, I, I was glad I was part of this. Does anything come to mind?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I can think of, you know, a case um, very recently that we've been working on for a gentleman who was, um, um, uh, 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 uh on the streets. Um, he was di- He had lived for several years, um, uh, on the streets and he had, um, metastatic lung cancer. He was, um, uh, admitted to hospital, discharged with a diagnosis, and all he wanted was housing, and that was what his dream was. And mm-hmm. um, while he was still he was he was experiencing a life-limiting illness and would likely die before he would get housing, he still wanted to get housing. And so while we 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 rallied around him to provide medical care. You know manage his pain and symptoms it wasn't the point the point was to assist him through the process um, you know make a plea make a case and you know housing waits are very long but in this case because of his short prognosis we were able to advocate with local organizations and get him a place of his own and um, um, when he got that place with furniture um, his eyes just lit up it was everything wow. to him And he spends a very short amount of time in that, in that apartment. And, um, and, and, um, but, but that, that length of time is not the point. The point was achieving, you know, his goal through a quality of life mechanism. As we think about healthcare too often, and, and our outcomes are focused around, you know, um, um, healthcare costs and, you know, um, and like um, metrics that are not person-centered for example Mm -hmm. and especially in the work that we do a lot of the metrics and the outcomes are 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 really around the social Determinants of health, which are defined by the structural determinants of health, and so we measured success in that in in that in in that case because um, he may have died very soon, and um, but but we were able to, to address his biggest you know goal in life, which was to get housing, and he died in housing, and so that was really important, and that's like a small snippet of a kind of the kind of case that we um, deal with from time to time, and a reminder that we need to move from an equality based healthcare system where people get the same things to be happy and healthy, to an equity-based system where people get what they need to be happy and healthy, and then finally to a justice-based health system where people get to make their own decisions about what they need and want to be healthy and are empowered and resourced to do so, right? And so that's that transition we need to make, and I hope this conversation inspires that kind of thinking for the listeners today.
0: My God, there's very few times when I I finish a a podcast and I leave it feeling inspired wanting to do more wanting to create that that more amazing healthcare system that we all thought we were getting into but I I just I want to thank you Naheed. this has been so incredible so moving so inspiring and we need to celebrate you my friend uh, how do people get a hold of you or track you down where, where, where do where do we find <laughs> you my friend
1: Well, before we do that, I want to thank you. Um, um, I think that you, likewise, are very inspiring and have shown great courage in having conversations that we we've been needing to have in healthcare for a really long time and thanks for bringing these issues and topics and and your guests as well thanking them to bring these issues to the forefront it's only by having this discourse will we actually be able to achieve some of the things we might might be able to achieve some of the things we talked about today so thank you so much uh, in, ter- in terms of me um, you can reach me on twitter and instagram at That's N A H. E E D D and for those who have taken the dive on TikTok you can uh, connect with me at dr.nahid. that's dr.nahid n a h e e d d thank you so much such an honor and privilege today buddy we are doing
0: this again that
1: was this was <laughs> for sure. awesome thank you so much
0: <laughs> much love respect qualcast nation are you feeling inspired i'm telling you i'm feeling mad inspired after that nahid representing this is exactly what Solving Healthcare is all about. Yo, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube at Qualcast. Leave any comments at quadcast 99 at gmail.com Leave a five-star rating or review anywhere you listen to our show it makes a difference and improves our visibility. You know we're trying to represent, we're, you know we're trying to change that boogie. Thanks so much for the support guys and we're going to connect again real soon. Peace.